You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Whites. Greetings and welcome to another action-packed episode of the B&H Photography Podcast. Today's episode asks the question, when was the last time you touched a photograph? And we'll be talking about what else? Photographic paper. This episode will give you a comprehensive overview of what papers are available for emulsion-based printing as well as inkjet printing at lab or at home. It's sort of a follow-up to our episode from a few weeks ago when we talked about inkjet printers. Questions we will address include what is opacity, what does GSM mean, and why should I be concerned about brighteners? First, a quick plug. We have been adding features to our show, and it's a great Great time to subscribe to the show on iTunes. Also, visit our new landing page, for which there is a link in the show notes. And while you are there, leave us a voice message. The widget is easily found on the desktop page. And if you scroll down on your mobile device, you will see it. Also, at the end of today's episode, we're going to be offering a promo code for 10% discount on all Canson paper products, of which we offer many. Before we get off in today's topic, um, Al's Gearhead Pick of the Week. Today, we're going to be talking about a lens I got the other day for reviewing. It's an interesting lens. It's a Mayer Optic Gorlitz Trioplan 100mm f2.8. Uh, it's a classic 100-year-old triplet, triplet optical design, three elements. goes back over 100 years, made in Germany, 15 aperture blades. And this is the lens that— 15? Uh, 15, count them, 1-5. Actually, there are 15 of them with anti-reflective coatings. Um, this is the kind of lens you use if you like— what they call bubble bokeh, when all these specular highlights in the background look like Christmas ornaments. It's a really pretty lens, and it, I've been using it for about two, three days now, and it's really interesting. It's not just the uh, the specular stuff, but even what it does to backgrounds, very painterly. Um, it's made with a shot glass. It's, it's a great optic. It's built like a tank, um, and I'm looking forward to trying the rest of their lenses. They're going to be sending us a series of them over the next few weeks. So there you have it. That would be the uh, Mayer Optic Gorlitz Trioplan 100 f2.8. Just saying it makes you sound like and you're smart. The, the, the soap bubble bokeh, that, that's your phrasing? Or that's no, what no, that's to, what they call it. Personally, bubble. I would never use that phrase, but that's what people are calling it. I, I would personally call it Christmas ornaments spectacular okay. <laughs> highlights, but that's just me. Um, now it is showtime. Uh, let's have some proper introductions. Robert Rodriguez Jr. is not only a wonderful landscape photographer, but a printer. And it's no wonder that Canson has chosen him to be an ambassador for their lineup of photographic papers. Robert is also an in-demand photo instructor and author of three books, one on printing and two on the art and craft of photographic seeing. Is that correct to say? That is. That's pretty good. Okay, I didn't go to high school for nothing. <laughs> Also joining us, August Pross is the print manager and co-owner of LTI Lightside, a full-service photo lab here in New York City. He started as an emulsion-based printer in his native Nova Scotia, and then in Montreal and Vancouver, where he honed his craft, eventually settling in New York City as a color printer, where he has helped build LTI Lightside into a premier destination for editorial and fine art, photographic, and inkjet printing. And by the way, that's where I bring my film, personally. It's a great Over lab on 30th Street, right? East 30th, yeah. Off Madison Avenue, mm -hmm. great place. Yep. Um, we we were talking about printers a few weeks ago, and we we're talking about the great 
strides that inkjet printing has been making over the years, the past, it's almost 20 years now that we've been doing this. Let's get into what this is about. Where is the future? Is it inkjet paper? Is it is it traditional darkroom? Is it a combination of the two? Where are we going with this? Where are we? I think it's definitely inkjet paper. You see so many new products coming out, and the inkjet printers are so much easier to use and maintain. Nobody wants to have a big machine full of chemicals sitting around to process emulsion-based paper There's something wonderful about having no chemistry. I have to admit, there really is. (laughs) Yeah. What about all the big tanks of ink sitting around, though? Well, you can turn that thing off and leave it off all week and come back next Monday and turn it on. No no problem. And they don't make your fingertips yellow. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) No annoying little itch (laughs) when your hand's in the bleach tank. And our papers, I mean, papers are coming out. To match this demand, correct? I mean, all Definitely. the manufacturers are putting out more and more. Yeah. yeah. And the manufacturers have tried to imitate the best of the emulsion-based papers and some of the more novelty products like uh, the metallic papers or the Fujiflex, which are, you know, like on a plastic substrate and have a very high gloss. Those were hard are, are hard to imitate with an inkjet where... You're actually laying ink onto the surface and you're not... Right. It's not in the emulsion. It's it's all surface, right? Yeah. But they're getting better and better. And so the choice you have with inkjet materials is huge. And the manufacturers of the emulsion-based are pulling back and limiting their product line until they have like a couple of high-end professional-grade papers that are have high silver content. So you have a good D-Max, a good black point. Um and then you have like commercial papers, which you would see in a mini lab environment, which are cheaper and easier to make. And um, so there's only a few choices now with emulsion-based papers. Mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is all color. You know, black and white is a different world where you still have Ilford and um, Oriental and other, you know, legacy Are brands. these manufacturers sticking with it? I mean, it seems to me right now that they're committed to continuing this. Do you uh, hear any little murmurings that, you know, something that you really like right now as far as a paper is kind of threatened? I think for for darkroom papers, the black and white people are very committed and they're going to be around for a long time. The, um, the two main color papers, Fuji and Kodak, um, those are big companies and they make decisions based on their bottom line and it takes a huge uh, volume to manufacture it. You know, like it's a very sensitive manufacturing process. And you don't have Hollywood clout to make a phone call to Kodak saying, listen, we need this film stock to go for another 20 years, exactly. right? Yeah. So when when the market shifts away from emulsion-based, they'll shift with it. Do you think there'll be any boutique labs, start, not labs, but manufacturers? Like right now, we're starting to see some of the old film manufacturing plants in Europe are being brought back to life. Do you think anything like would, would happen for color paper if this was come to pass? Yeah, I'm no expert. I know you wanted to. But. I'd wanted to, but I'm a little bit cynical, and I would, <laughs> I would have to say that um, you just need to make so much of it, and it's a perishable product, you know? Well, they make it in these master rolls and they put it in a salt mine somewhere and they cut it as they need it. But once it's like a year or 18 months old, that master roll, they have to throw it away and start over. True. And yeah, so yeah. nobody wants to sit on that kind of inventory and 
and and, and uh, a boutique person making it, like, do they have a salt mine? <laughs> <laughs> there well, are can, lunatics out there. Can you there. elaborate on that a bit? The, the salt mine and, and the storage of this paper? What, that, you, know? you know, that could be a hearsay from oh, my really? Kodak oh, rep, okay. but that's that's what I was told is that uh, somehow the there's a salt mine and it it blocks the gamma radiation, which causes okay. the paper to yellow over time. Uh, I. I wrote that as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle. Somebody bought that? Yeah, that was from news. last April 1st. <laughs> I don't... Okay. But do the uh, the major, <laughs> let's say the, the Fuji and the Kodak, are they uh, growing in their inkjet line and their, their digital paper lines or not really? Kodak really tried and like a lot of things that Kodak tries to do, you know, they they bought a bunch of royalties and licenses and they stuck their brand on it and they made what seemed to me to be a bit of a half-hearted attempt to market it, but I'm a very small part of their world. So I feel like they've kind of, they didn't get much response and they've already moved on. And now Kodak is, um, I think uh, it's sort of two companies. I'm, I can't really say what they are, but... I think it's more than two companies already. Just yeah. whatever's being licensed at the moment. And and one of those, the bigger one is is more concerned with like the press industry and... right. As the guy said to me a while ago, like Kodak are experts at coating things, and so if you need a coating, you can call Kodak. Mm. Kodak, that's what they know. Roberta, first question: You're everything you're doing right now is inkjet. Is that a Cor- safe assumption? Did Did you start off doing uh, chemical darkroom traditional? No, I, I I started printing right from digital. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, so that uh, I mean I. Most of my career has been with digital photography. Right. So I did a little bit of uh, film work, but I wasn't printing at the time. I didn't get serious about photography until I started with digital, and that's when I started printing right away. So it's always been with digital printers. So I'm I'm almost, you know, I've been there from the very beginning when digital printers weren't as easy, uh, as uh, user-friendly as they are now. Yeah. The setup now, you know, going back to your question originally about um, why would people want to go back to Emotion, you know, the, the setup, the hardware side, of digital printing now is really simple. I mean, there's not much to it. Yeah. You know, you, you hook a couple of things up, you run the software to install it, and that's it. Most of what I have to deal with is the software side and getting the machines to do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. But the hardware side, there's nothing to it. You know, you like you were saying, I keep it on or turn it off, make sure your inks are charged, and it works pretty well. I what mean, do you use? What's your printer? And do you print everything at home yourself? Yeah, I do everything at home. Yeah. Uh, I have an Epson and Canon, so I try to stay... Yeah. <laughs> Manufacturer agnostic. <laughs> um, and uh, for instance, Epsons have been notorious for clogging. Uh, my first Epson did clog. The last two Epsons that I've had over the last five years have never clogged once. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I try to maintain, you know, I, I use them fairly often. A, lot of that probably. Yeah. a little bit, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I don't think it's, uh, if you run, I, I tell people all the time, if you run one print a week, that's enough to kind of keep everything flowing and that's all you need. You don't have to, you know, use them multiple times a day. And, uh, and so they've really, both manufacturers have worked a lot to make the hardware side um, basically, you know, as user-friendly as possible. I want to go back to the Canon Epson question a bit, but uh, just something I'm curious, since you really just got into it all with digital, do you ever get curious about any of the traditional process? Say you have an image that you just love and say, I wonder what this would look like with on Ectacolor or whatever the... Whatever the new paper is, I'm, I'm using. I might use a term that's been discontinued for 18 years. I don't know. Yeah, actually, I, I've ha- I've had a couple of my images uh, made using alternative 
processes uh, through some people that I met at Canson, and they were doing that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I just, I just, I wanted, I just wanted to get a sense of what that looked like. Sure. And of course, it was, it's fabulous. You know, I mean, it just extended the reason, extended what I like about prints is it just made them that much more fantastic to hold in your hand or mm-hmm. to look at. Um, but in terms of the process, unless you're dedicated to that or you have a particular goal in mind with making uh, alternative process prints, you know, it, it's so much easier for me to make them on my own digitally. Some people just like being in dark rooms for long Absolutely. periods of time Absolutely. by themselves. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. how I got started. <laughs> so can I ask, August, about, uh, about your lab, about LTI, what, uh, what papers are you using for your emulsion-based work, uh, black and white and color? And then uh, maybe we can go then to talk about. Uh, for for black and white, we default to Ilford, mm-hmm. Ilford resin coated and fiber products to great papers. Yeah. You know the supply is good. And you and buy rolls and cut them yourself, or how's that work? For black and white, um, we're still buying cut sheets, mm-hmm. and because it's still available, that's the main. Uh, format and um it seems to me you'd want to go that route that's just less handling right yeah you know it just fits unless in you're the doing easel. like murals or something like that that's right and we we have a size limit so we're not printing anything over 20 by 24 black and white right. in the dark room um so a cut sheet is is easy to use um we have uh, clients who make special requests and you know oriental is another brand that's out there that um makes nice mm-hmm. high quality fiber-based Paper. So we use that for black and white too. And then on the color side, we use um, mostly Kodak, um, mostly Kodak paper in rolls. And we're printing that on a, a large format digital printer, a light jet. So you load in the roll and it, it exposes it with a laser and you unload it at the other end of the machine and then you put it into a paper processor, which you know develops it and fixes it and washes it and dries it and it comes out finished, you know, in four minutes. Um, we're doing a little bit of darkroom work still, more contact sheets than anything. People that shoot film, you know, bring it to us to process, and um, and we love film, and we love scanning film and turning it into digital work as well. But um, the best way to get a read on what you've shot is to get a, a contact sheet that's made in the darkroom. And, yeah. Uh, And so we do a lot of contact sheets on, actually we use Fuji paper for that because Kodak at one point changed their formula so that it no longer had the engineering to compensate for the uh, long exposure times in the darkroom. Oh, so reciprocity became an issue. I think so, yeah. Yeah, And, um, And they also, the formula, like somehow they did something about the orange mask of the, the color negative film, it was no longer important for the design of the paper to have a way to compensate for that. And there seems to be somebody in every single division of Kodak who makes these decisions <laughs> that ultimately <laughs> go south. Yeah, it's, it's pretty it's like Who's that person who said, let's take all of our digital sensor technology and license to our competition? <sighs> yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. I don't know. It sounds like... <laughs> Kodak, don't get, don't yeah, get me started. Don't, <laughs> but, you know, and not to get bogged down in the details, but <laughs> Fuji paid attention to the people shooting film, and their paper is still engineered to expose in the darkroom. So you mm-hmm. get better skin tones. The Kodak paper, if you take it into the darkroom, it's got a lot of contrast, a lot of saturation, and skin tones 
are a little harder to control. So if somebody comes in with a landscape image to print and somebody comes with a portrait, you might be using or recommending different papers based mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And uh, that, that brings me back to a question I want to go back to you because you mentioned you use Canon and Epson printers. Will the subject matter determine which printer you're using? Will a landscape or a portrait go through one or the other? Very rarely. Um, I would say that subject matter uh, almost never comes into the decision between using one printer over the other. It really okay. has to do with format. So they're not exactly the same size. The The Canon is a large format that accepts rolls. Ah, okay. And the Epson is more of a desktop that just accepts cut sheet. Gotcha. And so I might use them, oh, I usually use them more based on that, based on whether I'm printing on a cut sheet or a roll. Other things, for example, uh, on Epson printers, even today, if you want to switch from a gloss paper to a matte paper, you have to switch between two yeah, inks. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And while you don't, right. And while you don't have to switch out the cartridges, there's still a time that the printer takes to swap from one to the other. Canon doesn't have that time delay. So sometimes I might be in a rush to get a print done or I don't want to switch the inks because I got to come back to that printer to print, print another matte. And also whenever you do that swap, you are losing ink. It does. It Potentially, does, I'm sure yeah. there's something going on there. So again, that might be a decision where I know I have this printer. The Epson is already loaded with a matte black, and so I'll print photo, uh, a photo paper on on the Canon, something like that. And of course, size. If I need to print anything larger than uh, 17 by 22, then I have to use the Canon. Gotcha. So. Okay. All right. And August, are, are people still coming in for the standard four by six? Prints and and uh, development. Yeah, like that's what I would call like a mini lab service. Right. But what more than anything, you know, the the film shooters out who are out there, um, who are often you know enthusiasts and students and just people that love film, as well as professionals. But mainly now they're interested in getting a scan. So we process the film and then we scan it the full roll into like manageable. Uh, 17 meg files, and we send that to them using like WeTransfer okay. or put no it on a CDs disc. Or, do you still use CDs? We, if CDs? someone wants it, yeah. but mm-hmm. you know, generally people ask for right. <laughs> a digital download. <laughs> of course, yeah. and and the four by six is like the the topic of our show. You know, like when was the last time you touched a print? The four by sixes have really gone away, and people don't have that physical object, yeah, which is you know, yeah. the envelope. Yeah. Yep, yeah. shoe boxes of prints. That's going to be something of, of the past. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. really funny. We talk about you know uh, prints, and part of the allure of prints is the fact that they they have the, the tactile experience of it. There's something about looking at a print, especially if it's a fine art paper, has some meat on the bones and texture. Yet you really shouldn't touch prints. That's kind of the funny thing about it. Mm -hmm. You want to just pick it up and touch it and they feel great and they're amazing, but you shouldn't do that. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's something more about that too. It's also just, you know, when you just the reflections and and kind of trying to find that right angle when you're looking at a print on the wall. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously you guys know much better in terms of trying to get the, the richest blacks and, and, you know, the contrast, and, and that's a pretty wonderful experience, I'm sure, you know. What's the most common size, I'm going to ask both of you, mm-hmm. uh, when, when people come in for prints, what is the average size right now that people are looking at? Is that a, well, you could figure out on that one? You know, um, a lot of people come to us when they can't do it themselves at home. Which means bigger than 13, 19, or bigger. 11 by 14 or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of 11 by 14 or 13, 19 out there, definitely, 8 by 10 still. Um, but we also do a lot of larger work, you know, 20 by 30, 40 by 50. You know, we have an inkjet printer that can do 60 inches on the sh- short side, you know, and you can make a really big 
mm-hmm, print mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> on that. And a lot of people come to us because they can't do that at home. So uh, that's the niche that we fill. And are all of the, the inkjet papers you're using, I mean, are, can you get the wide range of types of paper for inkjet that you could always get for emulsion-based? Probably wider-based, I would say, right? Nowadays, now, much yeah. wider, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. although they do kind of break down into a few categories, three categories, mm-hmm. I would say. Pearl. Which, which, <laughs> what, what, what are the three? <laughs> um, well, um, I guess I would label them as the RC type papers, mm-hmm. resin coated, which are like a, a emulsion based color photograph, kind mm-hmm. of plasticky feeling. Yeah. And then you have the fiber based, the fine art inkjet papers, which are made with either you know, cotton rag or, or wood pulp, basically. And um, those those fine art ones come in either like a matte or a glossy surface. Like those are the wide ranges. So RC, matte fine art fiber, and glossy fine art far- fiber are the main categories. I think there's almost too many papers. Uh, some, of the, some of the manufacturers are producing... 12, 13, 14 different papers. And what I experience anyway doing trade shows is people asking, you know, what are the differences? Why would I use one over the other? They're confused. Or they're looking at what's new, ignoring what's been there already that has worked, but they're kind of overlooking because they think, well, if it's new, it must be better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are certain advances made with papers, but in general, it's like like printers now. Things are kind of leveled off. And uh, papers have been around for a long time. So I, I think many people should invest more time in just discovering a good paper and, g- and getting the most out of it. Similar to lenses, for example, or cameras. You know, yeah, everyone's yeah. just looking for the next thing. Meanwhile, they haven't gotten they optimized <laughs> or maximized or learned. Every, they haven't learned what's already in their bag. Kind of, sure, exactly. And, and I think another factor that adds a little bit of the confusion, too, is the fact that you have a lot of uh, what what we're calling paper manufacturers. The truth is, there's only, what, like four or five mills exactly. when it comes to fine art paper, especially in the world, and ba- and they're selling all this stuff to different distributors who are repackaging sure. and rebranding. So you could have six papers on a shelf, and it's the same paper right. in different packages. And, and the manufacturer will tell you that you know, the, the inkjet coating, the receptor oh, coating. These are our custom coatings. Yes, the stock, the media is the same, but it has our coatings That's on right. it. That's right. Yes. That's how they differentiate. Yeah. But. And, and Robert, what, what papers have you kind of settled on? What do you use when, I mean, I know it's Canson, but uh, you know, let's say you, you have a landscape image or then you have a portrait. Do you, what are you choosing? What are you using? Yeah, you know, so paper selection is something that I'm, um, I, you know, I talk in my workshops about having a, um, paper-centric approach versus a f- photo or image-centric approach. And many people start with a paper-centric approach. In other words, oh, I like this paper. I like the way it looks in general. So that's the paper I'm going to buy, and I'm going to use that for all my work. And, uh, while and, it, that, and it may not be suited for every image. It may not. And, yeah. and while they that may work, you know, I prefer uh, or my experience has been that I get better results from an image-centric approach. So I look at each image and determine what paper or which paper that I have is going to complement what I'm trying to get across in that picture. And so a part of that is really putting the onus on the artist or the photographer to kind of determine what is it trying to say. And I think that's really key because then it gives you a better sense of what paper to choose. Now, that's a more difficult way to go. It's harder to go that way because now you have to ask yourself the question, what is this image about? And of course, we know that now we're getting into the aesthetic and the artistry of what an image is. And a lot of people aren't there yet. That's fine. You also have to understand the characteristics of each paper. Some papers will have 
better separation of shadow detail or highlight detail. Of course. And and the image you want to do may not work with that particular paper because it, it won't translate well. Sure, sure. Which which is why I think it's it's uh, when you mentioned before about categories. I think it's important to start with, let's say, a paper from each category because those categories are going to really dictate different ways that the image is going to be interpreted. So right. a matte paper, any matte paper, is going to look very different with the same image than a photo or RC paper will look. Mm-hmm. And that'll start to teach you or you'll start to learn what it does to the image. And once you get comfortable with that and you can make the decisions based on just those categories, then you can start to d- dive into each particular category and say, okay, I know this uh, matte paper is best for this image. Now, which matte paper? Do I want some texture? Do I want better shadow separation? Do I want something that's a little more textured and will give me more of a rougher, more of a painterly or, or watercolor, watercolor look? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But you have to start with the basics first. Basics, you know, are really the key, the fundamentals. And um, the companies, of course, want you want, have a are very good at marketing the next greatest paper. And so you just dive into a paper without knowing, gee, I like that paper, but too much texture. So I don't like that category at all. And you're dismissing the category based on just one uh, test that you've done with a particular paper. So it take it, it does require time and investment and, uh, you know, in, investment in money, you know, which is like we don't want to not, do. nodding his head. Over here. <laughs> but, so how do you convey some of these decisions to a customer when they come in? I think... That it's like anything where you're that you're thinking about an audience, you got to ask like, what's it for? Who's your audience? You know, because there's some yeah. also some what's practical considerations. Mm-hmm. Like, is it going to go into a portfolio? Mm-hmm. Um, is it going to be handed to someone that is going to put their fingers all over it? Because certain papers are durable and certain papers aren't. You know, is it going to be framed right away? Like. Mm-hmm. What kind of glass is it going to be behind? Exactly. So yeah. yeah, like, what is your end use? You know, is a huge part of the conversation and then you get on to the more subtle parts of the image i'd love to if if you don't mind talk some 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 specifics about that maybe you can think of some of your images robert like uh, let's say uh, we're talking a beautiful fall landscape and maybe maybe it's too specific but uh, is there ways that you can kind of determine based on an image uh, what you'll choose yeah and um it's hard to use labels uh, because a foggy landscape could be many different things. Again, it depends, for me anyway, as an artist and as a photographer, it depends on what I'm trying to convey with the image. So as an example, uh, let's say I have a landscape where the whole reason why that I made the picture was because I had a serene experience. I felt something that was just transcendent and it was something that made me feel very relaxed, right? A high contrast, high gloss paper may not be appropriate because that's going to present a very, a much more literal version of the image to someone. I want a paper that perhaps softens the blacks, that gives more of a sense of uh, a metaphoric or even an analogy of something that I, you know, like like uh, uh, like Ansel says, you know, a, a photograph has to be more than what you you know than, than the image. Than, yeah. than the image. Yeah. Um, and vice versa, I may have an image that is very literal, very photographic. I want to present exactly what I, in the image on paper. I don't want there to be any sort of translation. Or, or perhaps I have a landscape where I have rich blacks and those blacks are, in, are key to the composition. So I can't let the shadow detail get lost on a matte paper. Then I would go to something that had greater DMAX that could hold black more that would separate the shadows and make that part of the composition work because mm-hmm. otherwise – uh, the composition breaks down. So, I mean, it, it, it's always going to come back for me anyway, back to the picture itself. Right. The picture has to work first before I can even consider it working on a piece of paper. Can you explain DMAX? Can you 
Can somebody explain <laughs> density? Sends <laughs> for maximum density, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the blackest black you can make. Okay. On it, and it's different for every paper or and printer process. as well, because yeah. different printers have different DMAX. That's right. The ink sets each one has capabilities. A yeah. Sure, and a glossy ink will give you better DMAX than a matte ink, or different ma different printer models. So, for example, yeah, yeah, every time yeah. Epson every time Epson releases a new printer, they try to increase the DMAX rating, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and that's a part of what they market. And 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 many times it is better. You know, they are improving the technology slowly, but it does get better. Right. Right, right. Okay, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, more about paper with Robert and August. And we're going to have a 10% discount code for Canson products. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. Okay, we are back. Uh, let's talk about attributes of papers. There, there are certain things when you when you buy inkjet papers. There's a whole little list of things that go along with it that basically identify the paper, thickness and weight. Let's talk about that. I some, sometimes I've noticed that the, the, the you could have papers that are two thicknesses and the weight is different. Right? Mm. Am I wrong about that? I I only saw weight. Yeah, okay. I'm more GSM. familiar with weight. GSM. All right, and GSM stands for. Grams per square meter. meter. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do we both get that? For $10. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so basically you have papers. Now, some of them are really, really thin. Uh, if, you, if you need cheap prints, you get the real, real thin stuff. Uh, but then they have thicker papers, and they go up to about, what, 370, 380 gram, which is sort of like blotter paper. Uh, or even 400 plus some Very of the numbers. Thick. Or 500. I, I remember 505. As a top number I've ever seen for thickness of paper, and you could barely bend it, but that is museum quality fine art paper. And then you have a photo board, which is available, which is essentially like illustration board that you could print directly onto. I love that. Remember dry mounting? You don't need it anymore. Um, so you have that. Opacity. What is that? Opacity. Well, before we jump into that, I just want to mention, as far as the weight, again, yeah, yeah. I think most papers, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, most papers seem to have averaged out around 310 as, mm -hmm. as far as a maximum weight, and then usually they'll come in half that, so some 180, 200, 220, and then 300, 305, 310. There are, Canson has a 340 paper. Generally, the more weight of the paper per square meter, the thicker it's going to be. That's the only way to get it mm -hmm. to be heavier. Um, and I think most fine art, uh, photographers are using heavier weight papers. They just feel better. They're more they also don't ding as easily. They, they don't, don't bend much don't, more durable. Exactly right. They don't bend as easy. They're more durable. They feel nicer when you mat or frame them. They're more liable to lay flat yep. and keep their form versus buckling. So when anyone, anyone asks me, oh, I, I framed the print and it's buckling, the first thing I ask them is, what weight paper did you use? And if yeah. it's 180 or 200, that's the reason why, especially as you get larger. Um, so you, you want 300 plus if it's going to be a, a print that you're going to want to have on your wall for I, a while or something. I would, uh, yeah, my that, opinion, that's yes. my take on it too. Yeah, I agree. Um, opacity? Okay. Yeah. Can we go back to that? Yeah, opacity now. 
Anybody want to take a shot at that one? <laughs> I see it on the tech sheets, and I'm not quite sure what it's <laughs> talking about. I, I often wonder, do I put a flashlight behind it and uh-huh. see if I can shine through? Or Now, for those of you who want to try out a speak pipe uh, uh, gizmo, yeah. okay, if you know what it is, call it in. Yeah, please, <laughs> totally. Please help us we'll out. We'll have you a guest on the show. We'll have a, dual, <laughs> a whole show of opacity. Hmm. Uh, then you have uh, brightness, too. Now, this is kind of interesting, brightness. Uh, and they use phosphorus to get these papers to be wider looking, brighter, which for brighter highlights. But there's a problem with that too, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's been a, a, an issue of contention for a long time. Manufacturers claiming that either they don't use OBAs or that's the optical the, brightening, right. optical brightening agents that right. they put into the papers to make them appear whiter. And if you have a higher white point, then your paper is going to have more contrast, right? Yeah. Because you've got more separation between whites and blacks. Um, then there are the the purists that uh, want to use uh, or don't want to have any papers that have OBAs in them because OBAs fade over time. That's the idea. And if they fade, then you will compromise the integrity of the print. So, uh, and, and the other thing also is uh, our eyes are really good at adapting and you know, modifying what we see. So if you compare a paper that's whiter to a paper that's not as white or a paper that has OBAs in it, of course it's going to look whiter. But as soon as you take either paper away... It looks great. It looks great because your yeah. eye will adapt and, and recalibrate itself. I think the big thing is it, it, if, if you have a print and you want it to last for whatever forever is, you don't want too many brighteners in it because yeah. the brighter it is, the shorter the life because that phosphorus actually eats away that's the right. paper if, base. If, if any at all, right? Yeah. If, if so any at all, so... Yeah, okay, and that's why some of these papers, they have what they call natural. It's sort of like a, a, a buff or a bone color, like off-white. That means there's no brighteners in it. So it's theoretically, uh, it'll last longer. The, the papers with uh, the brighteners tend to go towards the blue side. So if you're comparing two and you notice one is like a little cooler and the other's a warmer white, then one probably has more brighteners than the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have to, <laughs> you need a couple of UV filters to, uh, <laughs> yeah. or a uh, UV light, <laughs> UV flashlight. Yeah. 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 Instant drying. Now I'm assuming that means that it's going to be an RC, a resin coated paper. No. I don't think, am I right or wrong? I'm wrong, wrong about that? The fiber based papers come out of the printer dry to the They're touch. They're all instant drying, yeah. Yeah, they all are. Okay. Point. All right. All right. And we're talking now inkjet. And, yeah. And when they dry, I mean the ink itself is... Is dried into the paper. So that's an yeah. ink. Soaks in. Right? That's an ink attribute more than a paper attribute. Then, am I right or wrong about I that? I would say one? it's a combination of both. Probably okay. the coating uh, as well as the ink. The better they're optimized to you know to dry, they dry pretty quickly. The, the, only, the one caveat to that is that even though they do dry, or they come out of the printer dry, uh, there is the outgassing mm-hmm. part, which. You know, that's not ink drying, but you do have to let it outgas for a period of, you know, 24 to that's 48 hours. That's an important point, and that's something that I think anybody who's going to be doing inkjet printing has to understand. Even if you have a print that comes out dry to the touch, you have to let it sit for at least 24 hours because there's a lot of stuff going on in the ink itself. It keeps releasing. As it dries, it's releasing gases and all kinds of stuff. Sure. And it's not unusual if you were to take a print and even wait like 10, 15 minutes, and then frame it, put it behind glass, the next day you're going to probably notice a white haze over the yeah. image, and yeah. that's the <laughs> residue coming yeah. out of it. So you have to let the whole thing yeah. go. And I do know a photographer who actually um, has a, a reptile lamp 
So they're the lights that you buy for a reptile because mm-hmm. that will speed up the process ah, by yeah. about a factor of two times. So she, she will put her prints underneath this reptile lamp so she can frame them that same day because she's huh. in a rush. <laughs> and that'll, that'll, that'll yeah. make them outgas faster. Uh, I heard a nightmare story where somebody printed up a portfolio that was sold for a lot of money and they shipped it in a case. All right. They had all the prints. They did everything they were supposed to do. They shipped them in a case that was sealed and it had some kind of a foam padding in it. And between the gassing of the foam that was in this sealed box and the outgassing of the prints, the next day when it showed up to the gallery to be sold to the client, okay, they opened it up and all the images had these green and magenta casts all over them <laughs> as if somebody took bleach and just shook it around inside all day and they trashed the whole portfolio. So outgassing and drying mm-hmm. is a real important, important thing. Um, archival longevity is the whole thing about this. It used to be that, and we talked about this when we did our printer show, that if you made a, an Epson, uh, especially a glossy print, and you stuck it onto your refrigerator door, you can actually watch it fade. <laughs> you could set your, your watch, and within three hours, it's gone. We've come a long way since then. Uh, by the way, they look great for the first three or four minutes, those prints. Uh, but we've come a long way, and prints really do last a long time. And I think it's fair to say that any print that we put out, and this could be conventional or inkjet, if it's stored properly or framed properly and hung in an area where it's not getting hit by direct sunlight or fluorescent lamps or other high UV light source or high humidity, it's going to last 50, 60, 70, 80 years before noticeable fading may occur. And it, depending if it's a monochrome, it could last 200 or more years. So is that pretty fair? Is there any papers that you find that are still like you just don't want to go near them? I don't. Um, and I will say if you look up uh, Wilhelm Research, yes, at least for Canton's papers, for example, you're seeing if you protect them because the two, the two key detriments are UV light, as you mentioned, and ozone. Yes. And so if you put the prints in a box or put them behind a UV glass and you're not protecting them from UV light and ozone – and um, for o- almost all of Canton's papers, uh, they're over 200 years now, which is incredible longevity. And th- these are inkjet prints on matte or fiber uh, mm-hmm. uh, surfaces. The only uh, exception to that is b- uh, Barita, which has some optical brighteners in the Barita coating itself in the barium sulfate. So they don't add the uh, optical brightener to make the paper whiter. It's just, an, it's just the nature of the coating. Uh, but even okay. that paper is now up to... Last I checked, maybe 150 years if it's protected again in a box or something. So the I think those 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 rating estimates are far beyond anything with a with a uh, traditional darkroom print. No, D- well, definitely for color materials. Color, color, yeah. yes, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, if anybody wants to look a little bit more into this, uh, Henry Wilhelm, yes, uh, his, his Wilhelm Labs. Uh, he's been around as, as long as Inkjet, but mm-hmm. he's been around probably longer than that, but that's right for us caught on to him. He basically will take all of the papers. He's paid to do this by manufacturers. Uh, he's considered a really straight, unbiased guy. His lab will test different paper ink combinations under accelerated aging using uh, heat and whatever they do to accelerate this stuff. And they come up with what are considered very accurate predictions of how long a print should last before it starts to noticeably fade under, and they give you the parameters of storage or framing. Right. And that's a good reference point, but we're at, a, we're at a place right now where stuff really does last, so they are, they are good. Um, then there's gloss uh, levels that we have here, and we, we talked about that briefly. you got glossy paper, uh, 
some of the different awesome. services. Yeah. There, well, what are millions the, of them. What, are the, what do you guys offer over at LTI? I mean, you have obviously glossy and matte, but yeah, um, the range is between like the super high gloss, like Fujiflex type papers, which are like plastic. You know, they're so shiny, it's like looking at a piece of plexiglass. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for inkjet materials, you get down into like the what that what are called glossy, but they're more like a traditional black and white fiber print that was air dried. Mm-hmm. And uh, so air dried glossy, it's sort of it's shiny, but it's got a little bit of surface texture texture to it, and um, it's not like a hard plastic surface. And then you can go down to matte. And Is anybody ferrotyping anymore? I don't think they are. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> uh, and then we have sizes. Um, size, they're all over the place. Everything from little four by sixes up to, I don't know, 60 inch rolls and more if you're going to an industrial stuff. That's, you know. Mm-hmm. And whilst we're talking about inkjet and traditional, but there are other printing techniques too. There are oil based printers for billboards, and there's some pretty esoteric stuff out there. But if somebody came into your facility and said, we, you know, we're going to be doing this thing, it's going to be a monster-sized print and has to hang on the side of a highway for six years. We're not the place for that. That's signage. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's okay. All right. But, uh, the, however, you know, we're talking about there are media that, are, that use, like, petroleum-based things yeah. that will do all this stuff, but we're not going to go there. There's also um, other media, for example. I've used something called Phototex. You ever heard of that? Is it like a fabric that uh, – um, it's kind of like a fabric, uh, but what's interesting about it is that it's it's a wallpaper medium, and so it comes mm-hmm. on a roll, you print on it, and then you take it has an adhesive backing, and you pull that backing off, and it'll stick onto the wall uh, mm-hmm. like wallpaper, and it looks pretty good. And the thing is, when you take it off, it doesn't tear off the paint behind it. And if you uh, let's say you have a big image and you kind of lay it, uh, mm-hmm. print it out in sections, you can cover a whole wall, so you can make murals. Yeah. And I've done that for, like, my son's room has, like, a giant mural of a racing car or something oh, because wow. he convinced me to spend a lot of ink to print up this mural. For and you're a good dad, so it's not an issue. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you know, that's an important thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Why don't we talk about profiles a bit? Yeah, well, let's, during let's our break, that. we talk about profiles, and that's a really important thing. And uh, just to back up, a profile basically is, is if you have an Epson printer, and you buy Epson paper, and when you set up your printer menu and you tell the printer what paper you're using, theoretically, your print should come out very accurate. Now, also, we have to qualify this. If you did not calibrate your monitor before doing a printing session, if you've never calibrated your print, or if it's been six months since you've done it, good luck. Good luck, because <laughs> you're, you're, you're going to say that the printer's terrible because it doesn't look like what's on the screen. The problem is that what's on the screen is not accurate. So the first thing you have to do is m- calibrate your monitor because if what you're looking at isn't accurate, nothing's going to be accurate. Once that's there, if you're using for the same printer and paper manufacturers, like Epson printers, Epson paper, Canon paper, Canon printers, and you match them properly, that use the profile then you're going to have good results. Now, it gets tricky when you go to third-party papers because not every manufacturer makes a printer. There's only two or three that are. And that's when you have to download from the manufacturer the profile, which determines not only the color balance, but even how fast the paper goes through the printer because different ink sets, when used with different papers, require different dry times between each pass. So if you're using different papers with your printer, you might notice that some prints come through quicker than others. That's because they need more dry time between each pass. Otherwise, nothing works out really, really well. So profiles are pretty complex. You want to give us some thoughts about those? 
Yeah. So um, first, I would resist your idea that uh, you're more probable to get a better print using an Epson paper and an Epson printer. The only advantage you have from using an Epson paper is that the profiles are installed automatically when you buy the printer. However, once you're in the printing process, let's say you're using Lightroom to print or Photoshop, mm -hmm. you still have to select the right profile. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, and so yes, yes. the selection of the profile is going to be the same whether you're selecting an Epson profile or a Canson or a Hanamula profile. That's assuming you're not going into the idiot mode on your printer. Some well, people just want to go, do you want the simple or advanced? No, please sample. If yeah. you're doing that, you don't have those options. Then you really have to stick to what yeah, you're doing. So, that, that, well, so let's that, qualify that. Yeah, sure, okay. sure. So that, yeah, um, of course. Um, but otherwise, you know, you still have to set up the, the workflow, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, the proper way. Um, I like to describe profiles sort of like translators between different uh, uh, devices that use different languages. So your camera uses one language to describe color. The paper printer, but really it's the paper uses a different language to describe the same color. The monitor uses a different language to describe color. And the, ICC, and the ICC profile mm -hmm. is sort of the, the universal translator between each device so that the red that you actually see in the field and, and your camera captured is the red that you get on paper, the same red. Yeah. And if, if your monitor is not calibrated or you have the wrong profile, then that red may shift. And that's when, of course, you say, oh, that's the colors are off or the colors are wrong, or sometimes they're just horribly wrong. Well, my printer's terrible. <laughs> or my printer's terrible. <laughs> and right? how does that work in, in the lab setting? I mean, are you making adjustments constantly based on the customer's request? Or Well, we have a, a core selection of papers that we use all the time, and we go to the effort to make our own profiles because the, the profile describes how our specific printer prints on this specific paper, and we set up the parameters of how fast the printer's running and all that kind of stuff. So we want to control it as much as we can, and we, so we build our own. Um, but one point I would like to make about profiles that I'm often saying to customers, you can calibrate your monitor, but what, you're, what you have to think about is what color light are you looking at your print under? Mm -hmm. Your monitor setup is really dictated by your viewing setup. And if you're in a situation where yes. you're beside a window, your light is changing throughout the day, and then at night you're turning on a lamp. Like, no one monitor calibration can tell you what your print is going to look like under all those different situations. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely yeah. right. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, that's another one of the complaints, or one of the things that I try to explain is, it's two completely different mediums: uh, a monitor versus a print. And uh, the viewing environments have to match up somehow. And you could say that it's almost impossible to match them up. So, you know, the, the, the goal for me anyway is not to get a print. I don't feel successful when I make a print and I say, wow, this print matches my monitor. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm successful. The goal for me is to look at the print and say, this is exactly what I want the print to look like. Yeah. And so that's what I strive for. Now, of course, the more it matches, the easier it is for me to make adjustments. But ultimately, I want to produce the best-looking print, monitor be damned, right? Yeah. That's, that's what I want. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think too many people get wrapped up in this, does it match? The, does it not match? No. I, does it look great? Does it look good under different lighting situations? Well, that was situations? the same thing I always dealt with using, you know, in slides. When you look at your slides back in the day and, you know, the, it just the, the saturation is there and it's beautiful, it's perfect, and then you get the print and you're like, wait, that doesn't look like the slide that I yeah, took. What was the, yeah. Right. So that, and I think if you want to, if, if perfection is what you're after, then the only way you can really do that is you have to have your monitor calibrated all the time. And whenever you're viewing your prints, you have to do it in a workstation or a light booth sure. that has daylight balanced in it, daylight balanced tubes, which they make, you, and you can spend a lot of money for them, but sure. a viewing station, the light box should be daylight balanced. 
But probably the best thing you can do is if you're making a print to hang in a particular space in your home or office is to make a print and then view that print in that space before you make any final decisions about how you might want to warm it, tweak it or whatever. And just be aware that, you know, if there's windows in that room, it's going to change day by day. So it's ballpark. You know, given my feeling that perfection is the opposite of good, right? Um, How do you deal with artists, let's say, are some of them, I'm sure there's a wide variety, but some people ask you to redo and redo and redo. Mm -hmm. Does that happen a lot? And uh, how do you deal with it? Well, it does. And, you know, our workflow is not so different from the darkroom because, you know, um, we do judge the print. We want the print to be the best print it can be. And, like, you can do all the Photoshop work on your monitor in the world and then make a proof, you know, and then we'll look at that and we'll say, okay, well, this red isn't rendering the way it does on the monitor, so we've got to adjust the file accordingly. And so we... It's just like printing where you make a test print, you look at it, you go back, you make a change. There's a lot fewer iterations with digital printing, but we're still doing that. And so when a client comes and says, you know, it's not right, you know, I don't care what it looks like on the monitor, you've got to change it in the print. And there's also one, something else we always have to keep in mind. Modern monitors, today's monitors, can reproduce more colors than we can perceive And yet the best printers and ink and paper combinations produce less color and tonality than we can perceive. So you got something that's beyond what we do, and the end result is going to be less than we could see. So it's it's a compromise. Yeah, and I, I also think that um, – and this is more of a – maybe more of a, a philosophical approach to it. But if you're going through the effort, the time, the investment, the effort to make prints – then you should at least allow them to be something different than what the digital uh, medium is. So I want the print to, I want the print to almost take on its own life, if mm-hmm. you will. And if I'm constantly matching it to my monitor, it's almost like I'm not letting it become something separate from what that is. So and I it'll like to, never match your monitor, and whatever, ever. And, right? And, and in a way, I don't care. I want this to be something that I can say this is what this is why I print. This is why I print because I want something that goes beyond what I have on my monitor because now you're adding the physical attributes, the way the light bounces off it, the way it feels in your hand, the way I respond to it, which you don't get on a digital device. There's just something missing there for me. Well, at the same time, so. when you when you saw the, the scene that you're about to photograph, what you saw is never going to come off in the digital file or the print because... That's the real deal. Sure, sure. And here you're just simulating it sure, using sure. other mediums. So it's never going to be the same. Sure. It no, just that, has to be really nice. Yeah. 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 It has to have something, though. It has to have something yes. that, that brings you to what that original inspiration was. And Within whenever, the parameters of whatever the medium is. Well, the medium, is. of course. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I would like to just say, you know, I love prints and the physical object holding it. And whether it's ink on paper or it's a photograph, emulsion-based, you know, like you can really make beautiful stuff that mm-hmm. is a tangible object. Um, but so many people are looking at stuff on a screen first, and so many people get fall in love with what they see first. They always want to get back to that initial response that they had. That's good point. And, uh, and you know, like an iPhone has a beautiful screen. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we get beat up all the time. Like, see, it, just make it look like this. Do people do that? <laughs> they hold up their phone and, and say, they hold up their phone. phone. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, yeah, but this is a piece of paper, not a glowing right, device. Right, you know? So going to that, can you kind of give us a breakdown of what you do offer? What are the brands that you have? And, and, and how do you put put them in a hierarchy when you're when you're 
dealing with clients. Sure. Well, so do you have a thing where if somebody shows you on the phone, you can actually give them a print that has a big overlay on it with thin, thick <laughs> fingerprints on it? <laughs> a cracked screen. Cracked screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, we, uh, we print on a wide variety of media, but the main ones that we go back to over and over are Hannah Mule products, Epson products, and Canson products. Um, on the inkjet side, and then Kodak and Fuji on the and Ilford on the emulsion base side. In, in talking inkjet between the Hannah Mule and, and Canson and, and Epson, is there one that you would prefer when we're talking? You know, something that's a thicker uh, fiber based compared to an RC, or mm-hmm. they they all kind of match up uh, quality wise in your, your well, sense? Well, you know. The RC papers, I would say, are a lower quality, yeah. um, but they're totally appropriate for portfolios. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact that they're lighter and thinner make them much easier to put them in a book. If you're trying to make a, a book of prints that are all on a heavy, like, 300 GSM paper, you know, that book gets heavy yeah. and thick <laughs> and unwieldy really fast. And there are specific, like, RC-type papers out there that are made to be thin and easy to, like, and the color pages. is very high fidelity for their purpose. They're actually, yeah. they're the best choice. That's right. You know, you're not going to hang it on the wall of your or of your beach house, perhaps, but because, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's not what it's for. And they all offer kind of the same range of, of types of paper between those those brands? Well, Hannah Mule and Canson are much more aimed at the fine art market. I mean, Canson actually has a, a large RC range. Hannah Mule is much more fine art, cotton rag type papers. Um, Epson does everything, you know, and uh, there's different applications for everything. If if a photographer comes in and says, this story is going to be printed in a magazine, I need an inkjet print that will replicate the way it's going to reproduce on the press and in the magazine, then you're using an RC-type lightweight, you know, proofing paper. Um, the in terms of uh, black yeah. and white digital or inkjet, do, do you have a preference or... How do you direct people? People people tend to tell us what they want, and often it comes down to like a, a tactile thing. Like for fine art, usually black and white would be a fine art mm-hmm. customer, and um, they pick it up. And different papers seem very similar according to the tech specs, but they have slightly different texture. Mm-hmm. And people will look at it and they will immediately like put it down. Like I don't want that, you know. And then you show them another one that is virtually the same but it has a slightly different finish on it and they'll be like, oh yes, this looks better. And ultimately so. it's going to be behind a frame, behind glass. <laughs> You're never going to be able to tell the difference between the two of them. Seriously. Exactly. Seriously, it's a funny but, thing about it. Yeah. But the, the the more expensive papers are lovely to hold. You know, you, you just your fingertips no on the it. back side of it. Uh-huh. You can tell that yeah. it's made out of like cotton or, yes. you know, it's... It's really, a beautiful it really, object. It really does come down to a lot of the what the show's about, the touching of it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And remember, don't touch your prints. Just on the That's right. Okay, so so Robert, in terms of uh, Canson offerings, uh, what what do you tend to use, and and give us kind of a breakdown from from high to low. Yeah, so I mean, for me again, I tend to use the fine art papers. Uh, I like the heavier cotton rag papers and the wood pulp or alpha cellulose papers. I'm looking for something that uh, is going to be museum quality, something that I'm going to sell or hang or, or display in a gallery. So I, I like the the richer fine art papers versus the RC papers. The RC papers are great. Uh, 
for running proofs and things like that. Do you? But, will you proof on an RC paper? Then you'll later print it on a. I I a, don't because no, um, yeah right. because I think the difference in the two different looks. Yeah, two different look. The the difference in the surface textures and I, I need to have it on the actual paper itself to 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 tell whether it's working for me or not. But um, yeah, so Katzen has a, a really nice range of matte papers, everything from super smooth to uh, something that has some texture or more texture. And then they've got really nice fiber papers like Platine or Burrita, which are very popular. Uh, they just released a Burrita Prestige, which is 340 grams heavier, uh, more resistant to curl, so it lays flatter. Um, and uh, one thing about Canton papers is that none of their fine art papers use optical brighteners at all. So uh, with the exception of the burrito, which is just part of the barium sulfate. So if they really try, I think their, their, their mentality is to be as ideal as possible about producing the best quality museum-grade paper, something that's going to last mm-hmm. for a long time. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I enjoy about printing is this idea of, you know, you mentioned before the shoebox and how that's a thing of the past. But actually, I think it's more important than ever because we now have prints that won't be as fragile as, uh, as, as uh, you know, they're much more resistant to, to damage. So I can hand my, my son a box of my prints, and not just my own fine art prints, but prints of family, whatever, on really nice paper. And if he takes care of it, that'll last 200 years. That's more than I can say about my hard drives or, or, <laughs> or the cloud service that I'm using to hold my images. Oh, yeah. So, so in a sense, I think it's, you know, peop- a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm only going to live for another 20 years. That might be true. But you know, if you if you if you take any any pride in your work, you want it to last so that someone can look back at it and say, "Hey, look at these beautiful prints," because that's going to be the thing that I think defines a photograph the most is not how it looks on screen, but something you can pass around. That's that's what we like yeah. most about passing around our our pictures. You know, so. I reflect on that a lot, and that is that. Look, I'm, I shoot digital just about every day. I love digital. Um, and I love adjusting stuff on on the screen and zooming in and playing around and doing all this stuff. And, the, and, and digital imaging is just amazing. It's magic. Mm-hmm. But you pull the plug and it's gone. Right. <laughs> and I always try to remind myself about that, that, you know, there, it's it can go away so easy and be lost. Whereas that print, okay, yeah, you could spill things on it. It can burn. It can get thrown out with the trash by accident. <laughs> A lot of things can happen, okay? But it's there and it's physical and you can hold it. It's a beautiful thing. All right. Mm. Well, great show we've had here. Okay, Robert, for those for our listeners who would like to see more of your work and see what you're up to, where should they go? Sure. You can visit my website and blog at robertrodriguezjr.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Or we'll link everything in the show. Any Google too. any Google search will, will get you there. You can read more about uh, you can read my blog where I write often about printing and papers and photography in general. And also you can find my workshops there. Yeah. Okay. You have one coming up? Yeah, actually, I have a, we'll have a printing workshop coming up uh, next week, actually. Okay. But uh, the, wor- the printing workshops, believe it or not, are my most popular offering. So these things sell out way in advance. I'm full- all the workshops are sold out till like September. And where do you and, hold uh, them? Up In my studio. So okay. I take five students at a time, and we spend uh, three days going through the whole process of printing from evaluating prints and looking at prints to the aesthetics of prints. I say over and over again that the most important factor in making a good print is a good photograph. And that's a key thing because that's what you're putting on the paper. You have to start with good, good data, good information, good composition, and uh, and then we cover you know printers and papers and editing properly and the whole gamut. So and people seem to be gravitating towards that now. Okay, great. And August LTI Lightside is located where? We're at 
34 East 30th on um, Matt, like between Park Avenue South and Madison, right in the middle of Midtown. And as I said earlier, it's where I bring all of my film to mm -hmm. processing. You guys do good work. You've been there for a while. Been and there a long time. And it's yeah, LTI-lightside.com? That's right. Okay. Yep. Yep. okay. And for our listeners interested in some of the finest paper available, we are offering a podcast exclusive promotion, a 10% discount on all Canson products. This is from March 30th through April 6th. All you have to do is enter the promo code BHCANSON, that's B-H-C-A-N as in Nancy, S-O-N as in Nancy again, when making your purchase on bnh.com. Uh, again, go to iTunes, subscribe, leave us a review, and go to the link in the show notes and leave us a message on our new landing page. On behalf of John and Jason and myself, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs>